0: In the name of Jesus, amen. Lee Atlock, a pastor in another Christian (coughs) tradition, relates this story. A young friend called me to say that she had admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital. While she was there, I visited her when I could, and one of my visits was on Good Friday. I asked her if she would like me to bring (coughs) communion to her. She said she would, and asked if some of the other baptized Christians could join us. On that spring morning, five or six of us gathered in her room and shared the sacred meal. I think it was the most meaningful communion service I've ever shared. Half a dozen strangers, each scarred by heartache, sitting helpless in a locked ward. Yet Jesus was there, because we were there as His beloved. He was not only there among us, but He was there within us. Even as broken people, we were one with each other. We were strengthened by his presence, we are healed in a way. We were nourished, washed and rejuvenated, all because we had communion. I relate that to our story not to raise questions about different sacramental understandings. Rather, because it exhibits the four steps, or four stages, that we find in our Gospel reading from Matthew chapters 9 and 10. Ekloth saw these patients, these strangers in their need, alone, patients in a psychiatric hospital. Matthew writes, when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd is not a direct Old Testament citation, but we hear something very similar from Moses in Numbers chapter 27 when he asks Yahweh to appoint someone to, quote, lead them, that is the children of Israel, out, and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd after he is gone. And then again in 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah foretold the death of King Ahab in a vision, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. In both instances, God's people face a leaderless void. Sheep without a shepherd have neither a protector nor a provider. But not just any shepherd will do. We also hear an echo of Ezekiel 34, where Yahweh's sheep are scattered because the shepherd that he has appointed have been gorging themselves on the flock, instead of caring for the sheep. Surely there were leaders in Judah when Jesus had this vision of the crowds, shepherdless sheep. Indeed, they appear in the verse immediately before our reading, blasting and accusing Jesus of demonic possession, Many in our day perceive a lack of leadership as the pandemic gave way to riots and then more peaceful protests. They feel harassed and helpless, in the words of our text, or more literally, whipped and flayed and thrown down. But in Jesus' day, and in ours, the culpability lies not only with the false shepherds, or overzealous police, or even systemic racism. Some are thrown down by injustice, by grief, and the abuse of authority. Others are flayed by the virus, the resultant economic strain and loneliness of self-isolation. Everyone is harassed by a sinful inclination to respond with unrighteous anger, fear, and self-righteousness. All are helpless to their sinful nature. The old Adam, the old Eve, in each of us. A shepherdless sheep is not all that Jesus sees. His vision includes a harvest ready to be brought in, people ripe for the good news of the reign of heaven breaking into their world, a rich bounty of provision for those cast down, cast out of society's perfective veil, a certain healing for those with failing limbs and broken spirits, a blood bought with salvation for every sinner. Jesus sees just as Ekbob saw the need in that sightword. Do we see? Do we have the vision of Jesus as we look around to our families, our congregation, our community, our nation? Seeing is a necessary beginning, but by itself it is of no help. Eklav saw the needs of those that gathered in that small side sidewalk. He saw and he had compassion on their heartache. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion. Vision leads to vision engenders compassion, the second step or stage of our text. Compassion is, of course, a favorite word for Bible studies, splachnitsomai. It's a word that practically begs for a good case of Tillamook crud clogging your vocal passages. It is the gut-wrenching, intestine-twisting, visceral response to misfortune, calamity, and disaster. How profound to consider that it is the Son of God who reacts this way. He knows, He sees our lost condition, but He knows even more. He knows the end of our lostness, and His stomach rolls over. But don't let the Greek word steal the show. Consider the root of our English word, compassion. It comes from the Latin. It's a compound noun, passio, to suffer, plus the preposition come with, to suffer with. Jesus does not just see the crowd. He suffers with them. Hebrews chapter 2. For because He Himself, that is Jesus, has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered with. He suffered for us because we could not free ourselves from sin or Satan, thrown down by grief, plagued by sickness, harassed by sin, and helpless to guilt. Jesus stood in the breach to suffer and to die. Earlier in that same chapter of Hebrews we read, but we see Him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. In his compassion, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 42, and 49, and 50, and 52, and 53. On his 39th birthday, Christian Weinman was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. He wrote frankly about the agonizing effects of his illness and the treatments. Quote, and bones die and bowels fail. Joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have passed through pain I could never have imagined. Pain that seemed to incinerate all thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in the ashes alone. Close quote. When the diagnosis came, Wyman was a rising star in the literary world and editor of a prestigious poetry publication. Though Wyman confessed his Christian faith had, quote, evaporated in the blast of modernism and secularism to which I was exposed in college, the diagnosis started a journey that ultimately led him back to God. It wasn't a particular doctrine that drew him back to the faith, but Wyman found a friend in the suffering Messiah. He writes, I am a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I'm a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that absolute, solitary, and singular nature of human extreme pain is an illusion. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. I'm suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron wall around individual human suffering. In the face of brutal Isolating pain. We don't really want an answer. We want a person. At such times, there is simply no substitute for the presence of Christ. Christ was a suffering unto death, a substitutionary death, his death for yours, for mine. So we sang in our opening hymn Be of good cheer, for God's own Son forgives all sins which you have done. And justified by Jesus' blood, your baptism grants the highest good. Forgiven, justified, baptized. All of Christ's merits have been given to you. You are redeemed. Jesus has compassion for the lost and shepherdless, the flayed and the downcast, for sinners like you and me. And compassion leads to gathering, the third step of our text. Six strangers gathered in that small room of the psychiatric hospital. They gathered around the body and blood of Christ. In Matthew 10, Christ called to himself his 12 disciples. This is one of those really unfortunate chapter breaks that was inserted by the ancient copyists. It obscures the fact that Jesus has just commanded them Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest. And here in the next verse, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, gathers laborers for the harvest. It is, of course, a little strange to talk about gathering in the context of this pandemic. We now enjoy the right to gather as a group of up to 50 persons, while elsewhere the rules limit our sisters and brothers to 25 or 10 or not at all. Yet even as we gather, We do it behind masks at six-foot intervals. There is a pervasive uneasiness about our assembly that challenges the relationship between the two realms, the secular and the sacred. But let's return to the text and point out an important aspect of the gathering that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 10. He does not gather the disciples for their own edification. At least, that's not his primary goal. Jesus gathers his disciples so that he might send them out to send Necloth into a lonely room and a psych ward, and then heartbroken strangers. This is the fourth step of our text, the sending of the apostles. This is the only time that Matthew uses that label that comes from a verb that means to send. And we need to step aside here for a moment and note the uniqueness of the twelve. Three times in the first five verses of Matthew 10, Matthew speaks of the Twelve, and each time the term is placed at the front of the sentence in the original parenthesis. We also note the task of which they are charged. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopard, cast out demons. Theirs was an extension of the work of Jesus himself, focused on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And while in this instance Jesus sends them out to heal and raise and cast out, after the resurrection, the mission changes. John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. They are sent to forgive the sins of the penitent and to bind the unrepentant in their sin. In doing so, it's not a stretch to say that Jesus sent the apostles to do what he had come to do, to see, to have compassion, to gather. And to send. The four steps or stages of our check continue even in our day. Jesus continues to send His people to see others, especially those thrown down by grief, flayed by sickness, harassed by sin and helpless to guilt, to see them as people for whom He also died. He continues to send His people to have compassion on those who are helpless and harassed to suffer with them and to help them bear their burdens, He continues to send His people to speak words of life and forgiveness that not only creates saving faith in the hearts of hearers by the power of the Spirit, but He also gathers them around, together in His body, the church. And He continues to send His people to continue sending others until all have heard and believed and come together in His name. Last week our Gospel lesson was from the end of Matthew's Gospel, the so-called Great Commission. In a sense, this week's reading gives us the background for that greater commission. Before the sending, there must need be a gathering. And before gathering, compassion. And compassion can only begin when we see. And it all starts with a gracious God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, Lord, the harvest, give us the vision to see those around us. Engender in us the compassion to know their suffering. Encourage us to gather them to you. Equip us to be sent out and to send others that even more of the lost may be found in you. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, to life everlasting.